0: Evidence and answers. The biblical books are called inspired as the divinely determined products of inspired men. The biblical writers are called inspired as breathed into by the Holy Spirit. We believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be inspired and the inerrant Word of God. So if it is divinely inspired, are there any errors in the Bible? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's episode of Evidence and Answers, we will address the topic of inspiration and inerrancy. Now with part one of this fascinating study is Pat Zukran.
1: Well, we're talking about one of the two most attacked doctrines in Christianity today, the two most attacked doctrines are the deity of Christ and the inerrancy of the Bible. And those are the two most attacked doctrines you're going to find. And so we'll be talking about inspiration and inerrancy today. Now, we need to define both terms, inspiration and inerrancy. They're different, but they're very closely connected. first one is inspiration. Dr. Harold Linzel states, this is the definition of inspiration. Inspiration refers to the inward work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of chosen men who then wrote the Scriptures so that God got written what he wanted. The Bible in all its parts constitute the written word of God to man. And one of the most important verses there is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible claims to be the inspired Word of God. The Greek word there, God breathed. Theopneustos. It means that Scripture finds its origin in God. It's literally God's breath. So it reflects the character and nature and the teachings of God. 2 Peter 1.21, of course, is a critical verse. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14.37, he says, What I write are the commandments of God. In Galatians 1, he says, This gospel which I preach did not originate with man. So, inspiration teaches that the Bible and the writings of the authors here did not originate with them, but it originates with God. Inerrancy inerrancy defined by Dr. Norman Geisler here is this. The inspiration of scripture is the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit who through the different personalities and literary styles of the chose human authors invested the very words of the original books of Holy Scripture alone in their entirety as the very word of God without error. "...in all that they teach, including history and science, and is thereby the infallible and final authority for faith and practice of all believers." Inerrancy means, since the Bible is the inspired Word of God, God does not err, therefore the Bible does not err. So, in its original manuscripts, the Bible is without error. Now, that's a very important doctrine. You can see the domino effect from churches and denominations and seminaries. Once they deny inspiration and inerrancy, key essential doctrines of the faith, there's a domino effect. They just fall once they reject the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy. They look at all the seminaries that have gone liberal. Look at many of the (laughs) denominations. A lot of it starts when they reject the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy. It begins here. In fact I went to a college that once held to the inerrancy of the scriptures and they took that out of their statement of faith and you could see as I continue to watch that school its theology continue to change and change and change. Going from, you know, a conservative school, now it's swing neo Orthodox and you know, it's going full-on liberal now. But there's a lot of schools out there that have either redefined inerrancy or have rejected it. You know, one of the competing definitions out there is the Bible is inerrant in spiritual matters. But when it comes to matters of history and science and things like that, then it's not. there's mistakes in there all over the place. It only applies to maybe moral and spiritual issues, and that's about it. And even that is in question. Because if the writers made mistakes on those areas, who's to say they didn't make make mistakes in other areas? Very important doctrine. You can see the swing from conservative, evangelical to liberal, and often it begins when a church rejects. A church or a denomination or a Bible college or seminary rejects this. And a lot of the Christian colleges and universities out there, they have rejected this doctrine or have redefined it. Now, the extent of inerrancy. Inerrancy applies to the entire Bible. Okay? The doctrine of inerrancy applies to the entire Bible, not just parts of it. To the entire Bible from the beginning to the end. Some believe, you know, as I just stated that the Bible is authoritative just on spiritual or moral matters, but in areas of history and science it is not. But it, you know, you can't separate the facts of history from spiritual truths presented in the Bible. you know Jesus' work of redemption on the cross to redeem mankind from sin is the result of what happened in Genesis 3. If that's a myth, if that didn't really happen, Jesus really doesn't have to die for the sin of mankind. In the resurrection, it's a historical fact. It's based in a historical event. Second, and this is an important one to remember, Inerrancy applies to the original manuscripts only, what Paul wrote on, what Moses wrote on, what Peter wrote on, what John wrote on. Those are without error. The copies are not inspired, and they are not inerrant. Alright, you got that? Now, what we have here, the Bible we hold in our hands is not the original manuscripts. We don't have those. Those are gone. What we have are copies of copies of copies that have been handed down to us over 2,000 years. So, the Bible we are holding in our hands is inspired in as much as it is accurate to the original. Alright, you get it? So, when you read your Bibles, you may see some footnotes over there. Well, in some manuscripts, it reads this. In some manuscripts, it reads that. Maybe the best known one is Mark chapter 16. The last ten verses there, it says some of the best manuscripts don't include these verses. Well, it's the originals that are inspired and without error. The copies are not. Now, we ever do the authority of the Bible study here, you'll discover that what we have is 99% accurate to the original. And the 1% difference does not affect any major doctrinal issue. So what we have here is very accurate to the original. Right, but we don't have the original. So this is important to remember is that inspiration and inerrancy apply to the original documents only. When I was a young Christian, you know, I was taught, you know, I heard from the pulpit that this is the inerrant, infallible, errorless word of God. You know, and I went, All right. And I went out there to present the Bible to someone who knew history well, who understood the Bible. And he immediately pointed out several discrepancies here. I mean I was just kind of like whoa. He says look it even says in your footnotes best manuscripts don't have this. and I was just thrown for a loop. You know I was like wait a minute this thing is perfect. How? You know it, it just threw me for a loop. Inerrancy only applies to the original manuscripts. Alright our copies may have errors. Our translations may have errors. Now inspiration and inerrancy was the position of the church Over the centuries, for uh, 1,800 years, it was the position of the church. There's no evidence, Dr. Harold Lindsay states, there's no evidence to show that errancy was ever a live option in the history of Christendom for 1,800 years in every branch of the Christian church that had not gone off into aberrations. If you read the writings of the early church fathers all the way through, they held that this was the inspired Word of God Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and others, they call it the perfect Word of God. You know, Augustine states, this is infallible and without error. So it's been the position of the church for several millennia. It's only in the last recent, you know, since the 19th century, that uh, people have begun to question this. Now, there's no Bible verse that states the doctrine of inerrancy right? and It was not a creed or part of the early church. Why? Because everyone assumed it. Everyone assumed and had held to it. It's only recently that has the doctrine of the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible come under attack. You know we have thousands of manuscripts about 5700 ancient Greek manuscripts and when you've got you know from three different parts of the world Europe, Asia and Africa when you got that many thousands of manuscripts that you can match you can figure out where the errors are. In fact, we'll, we'll take a look at a few. You can figure out where the errors are. I mean, if a hundred manuscripts say, Jesus walked to Nazareth, and 9,000 say, Jesus rode a mule to Nazareth, well, you can figure out where the error is. It's quite easy to figure it out. That's putting it very simply. So with not only that, you've got the writings of the church fathers. In fact, the church fathers in the first fourth century quote every verse of the New Testament except for 11, You've got ancient translations, you know, Syriac, Coptic, Latin Vulgate. So when you put them all together, you got twenty-four thousand manuscripts from which to look at and compare. When you got that many manuscripts to look at and compare from three different parts of the world, you can figure out where the errors are. You can come. You can create a text that's very accurate to the original. That's to put it very simple. But yeah, that's a struggle that I had as a young Christian. You know. But when you study textual criticism, in fact, one of the best guys is right here in Dallas, Dan Wallace. He has traveled to different parts of the world to take photos of some of the most ancient manuscripts in the world. And I asked him, I said, "Is there, of all the manuscripts you have studied, the thousands of manuscripts you've looked at and studied, have you found anything that would uh, be of serious?" consequence to any major doctrine? And he said, no. He said, we've never found a manuscript that says Jesus is not the divine Son of God. We've never found a manuscript that said Jesus did not rise from the dead. Uh, When you look at all the ancient manuscripts, the testimony is very powerful, and it supports all our major doctrines. So the discrepancies are on very technical or minor issues. All right, very good. And because of that, the better word to use instead of error would be discrepancy. It could read this or could but either way it doesn't change the meaning of the text because it's a you know a real minor issue, most of them. all right, three reasons why the Bible cannot err number one, God the Father. number two, God the Son. number three, God the Holy Spirit okay end of discussion all right <laughs> can't get any three more authoritative sources than that three reasons the Bible cannot err God the Father. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Number one, God the Father. God cannot err. Number two, the Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, number three, the third premise, therefore, the Bible cannot err. Very simple. God cannot err. The Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. The character of God is truth, Titus 1, 2. God cannot lie. Hebrews six eighteen. It's impossible for God to lie. Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God breathed. God's very character is that of truth. God does not err. God does not lie. Psalm nineteen seven says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Psalm eighteen verse thirty. As for God, His way is perfect, and the word of the Lord is flawless. So, since God inspired the writers, since it reflects His character, since God does not err, His word does not err. Number two, second reason the Bible does not err, God the Son. Jesus, the divine Son of God, affirms the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. He often uses Scripture and God interchangeably, where in the Old Testament, you know, God says this, and when Jesus or the Apostles quote it, they say, Scripture says, so they're often using it interchangeably. Jesus often called the Old Testament teachings the Word of God, or God said. Matthew chapter 4, in the temptation, Jesus said three times to the temptations of Satan, it is written... It is written. It is written. The Greek word there is gegraptai. And it's in what's called the perfect tense. And this tense signifies that it's written in the past with continuing result. That is the significance of the perfect tense. So Jesus is saying this. This word is the permanent, unchangeable witness of the eternal God, committed to writing for our instruction. Jesus said that the Word of God is indestructible. Matthew 5, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. talked about the Word of God being indestructible. In John chapter 10, he says that, the scriptures cannot be broken. And once again, stating the indestructibility of God's Word and God's law. Jesus emphasized the supremacy and authority of the Bible that applies to all people at all times. And Jesus affirms historicity, or the historical accuracy, of the Bible. Many events in the Old Testament That liberals reject as mythology, Jesus treated them as historical fact. Matthew 19, when asked about marriage, he talks about Adam and Eve, treats them as historical people, and our whole concept of marriage is built on Adam and Eve. The reason Jesus came and died on the cross is for what? What happened in Genesis chapter 3. Jonah speaks of that as as a historical event. He says, as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, so the son of man will be three days, three nights in the belly of the earth. Noah and the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah. Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. calls the first five books the Law of Moses. David. Solomon. Many events or historical figures that liberals have treated as mythology. Jesus treats them as real historical events or historical people. All right, so whatever the Son of God affirmed is true. Jesus affirmed the Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, it is true that the Bible is the Word of God. Remember, God cannot err. The Son of God cannot err. The Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. Jesus affirmed, Matthew 4, that the Bible has divine authority, it's indestructible, it's unbreakable, it's the ultimate authority, that it is historically reliable, and it is inerrant. So, if Jesus is the Son of God, then the Bible is the Word of God. If the Bible is not the Word of God, then Jesus is not the Son of God. The Living Word spoke of the Written Word and the Written Word speaks of the Living Word. They are inseparably connected. And the third reason, the Bible cannot err, the Holy Spirit. And here's how how that paradigm works. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. Remember, God cannot err and the holy spirit who is god inspired the writers of the bible second peter chapter 1 verse 20 through 21 states this above all you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit Okay, now that particular passage there says here, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word there, pheremanoi it's used of a sailing vessel. When it puts its sails up and the wind, it catches the wind and the wind takes the ship where it wants to go. So, the imagery that Peter is using here, he's saying this, The apostles raised their sails, and the Holy Spirit carried them along as they were obedient to Him and brought them to the destination He desired. So, the writers were actively involved in cooperation with the Holy Spirit as they wrote the words of God. So, God did not suppress their personality or their minds, okay? but the writers were actively involved as they were writing the scriptures. Okay? That's why it says that they were moved, not possessed. They were moved. They cooperated and were active. Okay? So the writers were not in a in a in some kind of trance, as you'll see in many occultic possessions. Even early biographers of Muhammad, you know, when he would recite the Quran, they would say he would shake and convulse, you know. You know, those have the marks of demonic possession. When the biblical writers were inspired, they did not lose control of their mental or physical faculties. They were actively involved as they were obedient and open to the Holy Spirit, using them to transcribe His words. So they were consciously involved throughout the process. Now, here is a common objection that you will constantly hear. The Bible are the words of human beings. Human beings err, therefore the Bible errs. That's one that you will often hear. Premise number two is the one that is incorrect. The Bible are the words of human beings. Human beings err. The answer is that you must somehow always show that human beings always err. Sometimes humans do not err. In small towns, there are inerrant, in some small towns, there are inerrant phone books. Okay? I can write an inerrant little book here. Okay? 1 plus 1 equals 2. Okay? Page 1. Page 2. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Page 2. 3 plus 3 equals 6. I okay? can write uh, 10 pages of an inerrant book. Okay? Humans don't always err. And, they did not err when moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And remember, God does not err. Remember, the Bible is a human book, but it's also a divine book. It's a human and divine book. Just like Jesus, he was human and divine. So as Jesus, being human and divine, did not sin, the Bible, being a human and divine book, does not err. Why so many translations, and why do the translations continue to change? A very good question. Well, first of all, some translations are in for different purposes. Okay? For example, the New American Standard Bible. Their purpose for translation was to be word for word accurate. So, if you are doing like Greek translations, let's say the New American Standard almost goes word for word along with the Greek. Okay? That's why it's a little more wooden. It's a little harder to preach from. So if you're doing translation work, you can see how the New American Standard tries to follow the Greek words almost word for word. It does a pretty good job at that. But it makes it a harder translation to read. Now, something like the New International Version, translations like that, they tried to make it much smoother and closer to the meaning of the text. So if you're looking word for word, the NIV New Living Translation... They're not following word for word. They're trying to capture the meaning of the sentence. Yeah, well, yeah, there is the possibility of error if you deviate too far in translation. Uh, That's why certain versions, they're not translations like uh, the Good News Bible. You know, those aren't translations. Those you know they're going from the english trying to make it as contemporary as possible so they're they may be good devotional bibles but they're not necessarily really good study bibles yeah that's where the laws of hermeneutics all come into play and that's universal that's universal in any language you must interpret you know one of our fundamentals we studied last time you've got to interpret everything according to the literal grammatical historical contextual method of interpretation And even in translation, you've got to follow that, you know, you've got to follow that. And those are our guidelines and our guides to help give us the proper translation or interpretation as close as possible. And if we deviate from those rules, that's where we can go wrong.
0: Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. Be sure to join us next time for the conclusion of Pat's study on the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Bible. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available for you evidence and answers is grateful for our key sponsor highland capital management providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years to learn more visit their website at hcmlp.com join us again next time on the air or online for more evidence and answers